I'd like for you to turn to a familiar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I pondered this week our Sunday service, our message. I know it's a Sunday that we set aside the first Sunday of the month to receive the communion of the bread and the cup. And sometimes this particular ordinance becomes so commonplace. I knew I grew up in a Christian church and we took communion every week. It was just a weekly thing. We did this. Part of our church is how we did it. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I remember there were a lot of times it was just another thing we did in the church. It was really not a focus on the Lord in those days. My heart wasn't right with God, but I don't remember it. I'm sure it was said, but I didn't pay attention. But there wasn't a whole lot said about the deeper meaning or the sacredness of what the communion is all about. Because of all the ordinances in the church, this one comes with a warning. That if you're going to participate in the communion of the bread and the cup, you better do it in a right way. Otherwise, you're going to be guilty. It's better not to do it with a bad attitude or wrong attitude than to do it with one. And I remember so many times it was just a matter of passing the, the communion tray down the aisle and you get in your little glass take a sip and put it back, and that was it. I didn't take anything home with me after church. It wasn't like I was still remembering and reflecting about it. It was just what we did. And it's not supposed to be like that. And so today, I want to talk about this subject, why communion is sacred. Now, the word sacred adds a deeper dimension to what we're doing. It's not just a church ordinance. It's a, it's a sacred thing. I like to explain some of that too, but let's read 1 Corinthians 11. Let's read verse 23 through 26. Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped and saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Now there's a lot of symbolism here. That's what makes it sacred. It's what all of this references. It's what in other places the Bible portrays and depicts that is brought to bear in this moment, which we call the Lord's Supper. They were indeed having a supper. They had a meal. They had sent ahead to prepare the meal. They were together on this evening. Some say this was in commemoration of the Passover. You know, there were three convocations in Israel every year. Convocation means gathering. There were three holy gatherings every year in which the males had to go to Jerusalem to observe it. It was the law. And the first one was the Passover called the Pesach. And they had to go to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And the Passover simply was a, a reminder of their liberation from slavery. And it was all based on a lamb, a little lamb that had been in the house for five or six days and sort of become a pet to the children, no doubt. When they slay the lamb at the door, 
and they caught some of the blood in the basin, they would take the hyssop and put it up this side of the door, and then they go across the door and down the door, and of course there was some on the bottom. So the entire entrance into that household was covered, you might say covered or shown to be covered with blood. Not the blood of a human being, but the blood of a, of a little lamb that for five days had been examined and found to be suitable and perfect. And when the angel of death passed through Egypt that night, when it came to every Hebrew home that had that blood over the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. And that's where it got its name, Passover. It's interesting, but this first convocation had three feasts. There were seven feasts every year in three convocations. And then this Passover here, they had this meal. They had a lamb. They had to roast the lamb. They couldn't boil it. They had to roast it with entrails and everything, the head, I mean everything. What they didn't eat, they burned. And nothing was to be left behind. But the picture is that it was because of the blood over the doorpost of this lamb that the lives of the firstborn in all of Israel was spared. And they were to remember this, that you were liberated by the blood of a lamb 3,500 years ago, and you were brought safely out. And they still do that today. They have a meal they call the cedar, and then that's a very symbolic and so forth. But this was probably what this meal was referring to, this Passover time. And the picture is a wonderful picture because it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the focus. Remember, he told people once, he said, you search the scripture. This is in John chapter 5. He said... You search the scriptures because in the scriptures you think you have eternal life. He said, well, they testify of me. And for us as Christians reading the Bible and these stories are brought back to life, everything that was a part of these gatherings and these feasts and these convocations, it all in some way painted a picture of Jesus. Like, for example, the second meeting was a brief one. It was called Pentecost, or whatever they wanted. There are several names, different names, but the, we'll call it the Feast of Pentecost. And it depicted 50 days after the Passover where they were given the law at Mount Sinai. And it was a remembrance that God there gave him his word, and his word is life. And in John 1, in the beginning was the word. In John 1, 14, the word was made flesh. So the life was in Christ. And, and then it goes on to the other one, the Feast of Tabernacles, Day of Atonement, Feast of Trumpets, that was in the last convocation. But Israel was never allowed to forget not only who their God was, but how their God brought them to himself. And how God brought them to himself and who he sent to this world to redeem them. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And so historically from the beginning of the church, there's always been the time of the bread and the cup. And the gathering together. And I believe God intended for it to be, at least at some moment, there's to be a solemnity, a kind of solemn, shut everything down from it and give your best thoughts, evaluation of yourself to God, before God, and think about what you're doing. Think about what's behind this cup and this piece of bread and what it's all about and why If you understand that why you should be grateful and thankful that you're a participant 
in that because you were invited by the Lord out of your dark, sinful life by his power brought to him so that he might save you. He didn't have to. We didn't deserve to be saved, none of us. We were all lost in our sins. We could have been left that way. You know the story. But God chose. God made a decision. Jesus said in Luke 19, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I didn't seek him. He sought me. He sought me to save me. Why? I haven't figured that one out yet. Why did he want to save me? Maybe I'm tall and handsome. Somebody said not anymore, but maybe tall. No. There was nothing about me that was desirable. There was nothing about you that was desirable. Your talents, your beautiful voice, your beautiful face, your sophisticated social graces that, that are so smooth, that's not why I saved you. I don't know why I saved you except from the beginning of the world, before there was a world. He knew us. He determined through what we call foreknowledge. He foreknew us. And he had determined in his foreknowledge that there was a day in your life that you would break down and repent and be saved. And unless God had ordained all of this and set all of this into action, we wouldn't be here today. There would be no reason for us to be here today. Because religion cannot save us. Only relationship, only an abiding relationship can ever save us. So the communion is sacred. Why is it sacred? What is it about it that makes it so sacred? Well, you have to define what you mean by sacred first because all of life needs to be defined. You've got to have definitions for everything in your life or you're walking aimlessly. The word sacred has to do with reverence towards God. Whatever pertains to God, whatever is inspired by God, whatever points to God, not only is it holy, but because it is holy, it is sacred. The convocations in Israel were called holy convocations. They were called holy. These gatherings of his people come down here three times a year. They were called holy because they were inspired of God. It was a message that God had for them, and God ordained it, and therefore it was holy. Our gathering today is a holy convocation. We've set aside this particular day, the first day of the week, in commemoration of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, which makes it all work anyway. Without that, nothing would work. But we set aside this day to come together before him to focus for a couple of hours. Hopefully it lasts two hours. Not the sermon, but the whole meeting. Maybe. But we come together to focus on him. To shut down all of our busy life and all of our schedules and just a time before we fellowship, after we sing and inspire, get it. Now we want to hear what it is God has for us to hear. As far as I'm concerned, by definition, that would be a sacred gathering, a sacred moment. How sacred it is for you depends on what's in your heart and your attitude about it. Like he said in 1 Corinthians 11, you don't want to eat this bread and drink this cup in an unworthy way. You don't want to do that. 
Because if you do, you're guilty of the very reason he died. It's a time of sacred examination of your life, of coming together and meeting together and singing and so forth. Now, what makes it so sacred? This is what I want to leave with you today. First of all, is its message. The communion, the bread and the cup, is a message. Many points to it. It's a story. The whole Bible is about it. It's about redemption. Remember the song, Redeemed? How I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And then we redeemed, redeemed, his child and forever I am. Redemption is the Bible message because the Bible shows all men are lost. They are esteemed as good in their own eyes. It seemed like everybody today in the world considers himself too good to go to hell because they're not that bad. So therefore, everybody, when they die, I figure they're just going to the great golf course, the great fishing hole, the great whatever in the sky. And somehow God accepts them no matter how they live because in the estimation of themselves, they're not that bad. I'm not that bad. But the Bible shows that all men are lost. There's not a right one amongst us. And worse than that, there is nothing that a man, once he realizes that he's not right with God, there is nothing a man can do to make himself right with God. He can't go to church enough. He can't give enough. He can't be kind enough. There's nothing you can do. If you could do anything to save yourself, there would have been no reason for Jesus to come to this world. Because you've discovered you found your own way to be saved. That's man's way of doing things. That's what we call religion. We're taught, subtly taught, that if we go to church, if we participate and we give and we do and we help, then you're going to heaven. But the Bible doesn't say that. Salvation is a relationship from which Christ does his works. But it's a relationship before it's anything else. And the only kind of relationship that's right It's when a man turns away from his sinful life that's all about self, that exalts me, my ways, my future, my tomorrows. And he is humbled, and he turns around, and he bows his heart and his head before God, who alone is right. And in surrender to God, he offers himself to God. He's not worthy of anything. He's not good enough for this, but God chose to do that. This is the message of the Bible. We were lost. We couldn't save ourselves. Only God could do it. He didn't have to. There was no reason. There was no compelling reason for God to have to save anybody. But the fact that he chose to save somebody, the fact that people are saved means that God did something because God doesn't want to judge us. God wants to save us. And so he gives us A way to be saved. That's what makes it all sacred. And that's what this message is all about. You see, Jesus is the focus of this whole thing. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent, the Savior, the Redeemer, Jesus. The name that is above every name. The name whereby we must be saved. Jesus. This is 
all about him. And how is it all about him? Well, he was God's lamb. Was he not the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? He didn't come as a lion to judge and to tear his prey. He came as a lamb. He came as a lamb to a people who did not want him, did not care about him. He lived amongst these people, ministerially speaking, for three and a half years in his power and his might. And yet he was so unpopular with the important people that when it came time to crucify him, they didn't know who he was. They had to bribe somebody to point out which one is him. I think it's amazing that Jesus did not come to impress the world with who he was just to convict you of your sins. The world didn't care about it. It still doesn't. And yet the world can't care about him. We are hopelessly lost and bound in our sinful ways unless God opens our eyes. And look at the eyes he didn't open. But he doesn't have to. There's no law that says God has to open everybody's eyes. Why did he open yours? Because he wanted to. Why you? I don't know why you and me. But he did. He did. And has asked us not only to gather together to learn of him, to take his yoke upon you and realize that life is not about you, it's about him. Live his way. That Christianity is, is being conformed to Christ. It's living on his terms. Teach that, preach that, compel the people to believe that. At the communion table, bring that message out to say, this is why we're here. We're here because of him and what he did. We're not here because of any goodness that we have. We're not here because of any badness that we have. God doesn't love us less because we mess up. But he doesn't want us to mess up. We're used to messing up. We mess up our lives all of our lives. But Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. That's what he said. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And I was lost once. I sat in the Christian church like you sat in the Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever church you were in, if you were in one, because it was what good people do. It was what proper people do. You go to church and you drive by houses where they're snoozing and snoring on the golf course. You say, huh, they ought to be in church. I'm going to church. Because we, by nature, were self-righteous. But we are in church, and we're there because Jesus brought us here. And notice what he did, the Bible said. Let me read a couple things that describes what our Savior did, that he did not have to do. You see, Jesus' life was a response to God's will. Would you agree to that? Jesus said, I came to do my Father's will. I came to seek and save the lost. I came to save sinners. Paul said, I was the chief of sinners. But this is what he did. Now, listen to this. Jesus said in John 10, 15, about the shepherd, he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, the sheep he's talking about are the sheep that were chosen. He said, I lay down my life, not for every lost person in the world, though my life is sufficient to save everybody in the world, anybody that believes. 
But those that it's going to be effective for and those that are going to benefit from it are called his sheep, the ones that the Father gave me. He said, I laid down my life for the sheep. And didn't he teach us that greater love has no man than this? That a man would lay down his life for his friends. He said, and you are my friends if you do what I tell you. That makes it interesting too, doesn't it? It takes kind of some of the goofiness out of us. No greater love is this than a man would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, and you. You folks are my friends, if, if you do what I tell you, you're my friends. Because that's who Jesus shares his secrets with. Friends share together. The Bible teaches that too. But anyway, this is what he did. And you know why he did it? The motivation for him doing it was love. Why would he love you? If you have a Bible, and I'm sure you do, look at Romans chapter 5. And verse 8 for just a moment. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. When I think of love, you know, it's a commonly used word, probably overused. And, but when it comes to the spiritual nature of love, it's always an expression of what God does and what God is. Love. Love and compassion and caring, commitment. Listen to me, God doesn't love us because we love him back. We love him because he first loved us, but his love doesn't go out only to those that are going to give it back. God loved the world, didn't he? The world doesn't love God. How many times has he loved us and we've ignored it? And yet his love is greater than our weaknesses and he didn't discard us and throw us away. He kept us close. He fixed us because he chastened us. He reminded us, you're not going to do that and be my child. Because whom I love, I chasten. If I don't do this, as he says in 1 Corinthians 11, you'll be judged along with everybody else in the world. I've got to change you. And the only reason I'm going to change you is because I love you. I love where you're going to go. I love the place that's being prepared for you. I love what you're going to experience in eternity. I know somebody this morning who's in eternity. Somebody that's not confined to a wheelchair, not bound by any weaknesses or failings, but free as a bird. That's got to be good. That's got to be better than anybody here's got it. That's a good thing. Verse 8, God commended his love toward us. While we were taking communion and serving God, singing just as I, while we were singing amazing grace, he saw that we were trying hard, so then he started loving us. But isn't it true that God only loves those that are loving him back? And if you don't respond to him, he'll quit loving you? Love's bigger than that. Like Paul said, that love is greater than your understanding. You can't comprehend the depth of the love of God. God is not a man. God is not like a man. God doesn't love like us. Our weaknesses don't cause him to turn his back on us. Our failures doesn't make him give up on us. Because he that started a good work is going to keep doing it. Why? Because of love. Love is commitment. 
And when you're committed to somebody, you stay with them. You hold fast. And while we were out there running in this world, and I'm ashamed of, I'm not giving my testimony. But as I reflected back this week of all the shameful times in my past, especially my time in college, Lord, if you can avoid it, avoid it. But my time in college, university, of all the rotten, no good things that I did, the shameful everything. You say, oh, you weren't really like that. <laughs> Thank you. While I was like that, Amen. while I was that vile, Jesus died for me. Amen. And all the things that are a part of his death, all the things that are involved in the meaning and how you come into that and how it all... All of that, he did that for me while I was a heathen. Or as we say down in the mountains, while I was a heathen, he died for me. He loved me while I was unlovely. He loved me when I was completely and totally unworthy and with my back to him. In the bars and other places, he loved me. And his love was exemplified, made clear to me. On June 30th, 1968, five minutes to 12, the first Christian church in Charlestown, Indiana, corner of Water and Harrison Street. It all came together. And I've never felt more ashamed that morning, that June morning. That was last week. I've been saved 46 years in a week. I never felt more ashamed of myself in my whole life. Basketball coach, school teacher, opportunities coming. And here I am confronted with the Savior. And when he wants to get your attention, you don't think of other things. You don't look for some kid to grab so you can go outside. All you're aware of is, is how bad you really were inside. And he has known it, watched it, and recorded it. Nothing's been hidden all the shameful things, nothing was hidden. He knew all about your life. He knew how you acted after church. You went out and acted like a fool after being in the hour of power. You know, you left the church and you were, nothing ever affected you. Your relationship to God was one of rejection. I don't need it. I don't want it. I'm here because of my mother or I'm here because I learned how to do it. It helps my image in school to go to church. That's the kind of person you were, and while you were like that, while you were like that, Jesus died for you. That's what that's about. Just as I am, no wonder he said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me, which simply means I was lost cut off and separated from God. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10, it says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us. This is the way God manifested his love toward us. It says that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son 
to cleanse and remove our sins from us. It could only be done by the Son. God had to do it. The Bible says God prepared for himself a body. A human nature. A body. The same restrictions that are on our body was on his body. God made a body and he put himself in it. He gave it a name. You know what the name of the body was? It was Jesus. The most unique human being ever born in the world. Very human. Called the son of Adam. And very divine. Called the son of God. Holy seed from heaven. And the womb of a young virgin. Connected. And the God man was born. Very divine. Very natural. Very normal. In the days of his flesh the Bible speaks of. He was like us. Hebrews 3 says. In all points he was tempted like us. You can't tempt God. But Jesus had a human body. He had a soul. He had a spirit. He had a body. That limited him. As our body renders us weak, his was too. It needed rest. It needed to be bathed. You had to feed it. You had to take care of it. He had emotions like us. He was tempted like us. He faced every vile thing you face. Everything. And yet, he never yielded to it because he was on a mission. The Bible says God was in Christ. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to him. That's the way it was. They said we'd like to see the father. Jesus said if you have seen me. You have seen the father. You mean you're God? That's the way it is. This is how God chose to reveal himself to us. Because you see, God is spirit. What does the spirit look like? God is spirit. That's why God can be in all places at all times. There's nowhere God would have to go to be there. He's always there because he is God. He's omnipresent, isn't he? Jesus, a human man, is here. Or he's there. Or he's here. Or he's there. There's not two Jesuses. There's just one. And God chose to manifest himself to us like this. Jesus was able to say the Father is greater than I. Colossians says the world was created by him. The Bible says God created the world. The Bible says the Spirit of God hovered above the face of the deep and the world became. It's all one package. But when it comes to redemption, it all comes back to that human, that physical body. His name was Jesus, who went to a cross. He had human blood in him, yet his blood wasn't human. Acts 26 talks about that God redeemed his church with his own blood, the blood of God. I believe that's the same blood that was offered in heaven after his resurrection when the heavenly things were sprinkled. They even saw the ark up in heaven. Indiana Jones would look all of his life. And he'll never find it because in Revelation 19 says, John had a vision. He said, I saw the ark in heaven. It was taken to heaven. It was that sacred. So sacred was the ark that if you touched it and you weren't a priest, given the day and right way to do it, you would die. Ask the Philistines about it. 
all those tumors they have when they capture the ark? No, sir, this book is all about the redemption of Jesus and about how he loved us and how he cared for us. It says Christ has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. That's you. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh because you can't kill God. But the body that he was in could die for us. The blood of sheep and goats can't say it had to be the blood of a perfect human to redeem us. And he was the only way it could happen was like this. Jesus was a perfect man. But he had to overcome. He did. He had to grow. He said in John 16, I've overcome the world. He had to do that. Hebrews 5 said he learned obedience through the things he suffered just like we do. And he did it. Why would he do that? Why would he restrict himself from all the little temptations in the world they faced him? But why he never gave into it? Because he had us in his mind. The only hope we have is him. The only hope we have of escaping the sentence of death is him. And he came into the world to live so perfectly that God would accept him as a suitable, proper sacrifice for the sins of man. Because when God created the world and he created it right, man ruined it. Adam, the first Adam. The first Adam surrendered to sin. And he did the whole ruling of the human race fell into the hands of the devil. He's called the ruler of the world's darkness. The prince of the power of the air. The one whom Jesus came and triumphed over. Remember that in Colossians 2? He triumphed over him through the cross. Took away from him the rights he had. Came back to the earth after his resurrection. Told his disciples in an upper room. He said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Then you know what he said? You go do what I did. What? You go do what I did. You can't save man, but you can put the devil under your feet just like I did. Because yeah. he said in 1 John 3, For this cause the Son of Man came to the earth, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And he says, you go into all the world. You not only preach the gospel, but you'll be able to take up serpents. Those serpents and scorpions were called the power of the enemy in the Bible. You have power over that. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. All because of the redemption that was brought to us in Christ. It's not just be saved and that's it. It's a life we get to live. A life of abiding in him. A life that he gave us that we did not deserve because he loved us. He was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive in the spirit. And isn't that what happened to you when God saved you? Didn't you get a new spirit? Did not the old pass away? Did not God put new life on the inside of you? He said, the works that I did, you'll do also. Didn't he say that? You can. But it's got to be in our heart. It can't be just a religious moment of gathering together and observing the communion. 
It has to be a time of reflection on the greatest expression of love for lost, worthless mankind that has ever been seen. That a loving, holy, and righteous God would send his son to this earth for a bunch of vile sinners on the behalf of them so that God could save them and wouldn't have to judge them. And here we are. And sometimes we are so indifferent, we act so ugly. You know what else happens here? Not only does he loved us and redeemed us, he's given us power. I just mentioned it, power. Everybody needs it in your life, the power to overcome sin, drinking, carousing, pornography, weaknesses of lying and backbiting and tattletaling and gossip. Those are things you do and you can't hardly stop. But there is a power that is given to us that we can stop all of that stuff. I do not have to continue to be a slave and be dominated by the powers of darkness. He said in Romans 6, sin shall not have dominion over you. Power comes from God. Psalm 62, 11 says that power comes from God. What did Jesus tell Pilate? Remember in John 19, Pilate said, do you not know that I have power to do this or that? Remember what Jesus said? He said, you could have no power over me at all. I don't care who elected you, what kind of a position you have, what kind of authority you have with mankind. You could have no power at all. Is at all okay? At all, at all. You could have no power, Mr. Pilate, except... God gives it to you. And whatever power and authority he gives to anybody, from the most wicked of the rulers, it's all in accomplishing his goal. It's coming to a head, about to come to a head now. All things are going to be as it was written in Scripture. Everything. God has used all kinds of people and events in Scripture to accomplish his purpose. What he has decreed will come to pass. That person who's going to be saved who doesn't care about God. He's too clever in the ways of this world. Has opinions and ideas and has a philosophy about God that he thinks his is as good as anybody else's. He's more in tune with being vile and ugly and pleasure and having fun. He doesn't even realize it. But if he's marked out for salvation, he's about to get saved. He's about to get, if I may use the language, he's, he's about to get thrown on his face, wind up in the dust of there, squalling like a baby. Because God has chosen at a certain time to save him. And if God has chosen to save you, trust me, you will be saved. And hopefully your life is lived all through there the way that it should be lived. You see, when you were born... You were crying and everybody else was laughing. Ha ha ha. You were just squalling. Then you come to the end of your life, everybody's squalling. You better hope you're laughing. You didn't get that. Never mind. I read that there. I thought you might appreciate that. Power. I like the idea that God has given power. You know where his power's at in the communion? It's in the blood. We, don't we sing a song? Isn't there still a song we sing? There is. Power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't there a song like that? I know that's not scripture, but 
Isn't that what the Bible teaches? What about that lamb in Exodus chapter 12? What kind of power was there in the blood of this lamb? This is an animal. This blood on this doorpost was not human blood. It was an animal. A little lamb or a he-goat, it was a proper animal. It had nothing to do with a person. And this blood was effective not only because a lamb's life was given to save this household, but because the people in the household believed that if they responded to God, the power of the blood would work for them. They had to believe that. Many of us are often saying the blood of Jesus. This is what we're thinking about. The power of the blood of Christ is greater than the power of a lamb. Because a lamb could not wash away your sins. It could only temporarily keep you from dying. They died later. This kept them from dying in Egypt. The blood of the lamb can save you. And take you from death to life. As I said, the blood of the lamb was called the blood of God in Acts 20. In verse 28. He saved the church with his own blood. Would it be true that the father determines the blood type? Bonnie, you went to college. Isn't that true? It is true. My anatomy and physiology teacher would say, yes, it is true. Then if that's true, then the blood type that Jesus had, the blood that was in Mary was divine blood in a human body. Still had to do all the things a human body does. But the blood was the blood of Christ. And think of when it was shed. Remember the garden? In the garden when he was praying and great drops of sweat fell? That was one. Then he was taken before the ruler and remember they beat him? And I'm sure there was at least a few scratches on his face as it bled. Plucked his beard out, Isaiah said. That would be two. And how about when they took that cat of nine tails and just beat the daylights out of him? When chunks of flesh would fly off of his back and blood was everywhere. That would be three. Then how about the crown of thorns they put on his head and then took his, mocking him as a king with his staff and then taking the staff and whacking him over the head with those thorns. And those thorns, we've seen them. They were about that long. Maybe longer than that. And they go down in your scalp. They go down in your skin. And I am sure that hurts. That would be four. Then they got him over there to cross. They put a hole here in his hands. That bled. They put him in his feet. That bled. And then they stuck a spear in his side after he died. And yet he still had enough to offer some of it in heaven. I don't either, but that's what it says. Why did he do that? All of this was done for you. For me. Why? Because he loved me. How could you love me like that? Because he's God. I don't understand. You'll never understand. Just surrender to it and be thankful for it for the rest of your life. Follow him as an act of not just appreciation, but an act of surrender. Live on his terms. Be in the meeting. Study. Read. Listen. Take notes. Reflect. Meditate. Talk about Muse the word. Let this word live in you. Let God be in all your thoughts. 
quit living like the world and dreading what you're going to lose if you don't go. If I can't borrow, I, give it up. Esteem the riches of God greater than the riches of this world. Love him more than yourself and your toys. And just have a desire to live on his terms. Turn to Hebrews 2. This blood of the lamb is the same thing that redeems you. Redeemed. He himself, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 2 and verse 12 and 14. He said, for as much then as the children, that's us, are partakers of flesh and blood, that's a human natural body, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Did he? Well, why is there still a devil then if he's destroyed? He destroyed his power, didn't he? The only power the devil can have today is what you give him. The Bible teaches Ephesians 4, you can give place to the devil. If you give place to him, he'll take advantage of it. And I don't care what you've been redeemed of or how much Bible you can quote, you're still bound. The Bible not only is a book of redemption, but it's liberty and freedom through the blood of Christ. Look what Jesus did. The next verse says, and verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime. That's us, subject to bondage. I was sick my whole life. My whole family, my family tree was robbed. They all went to church. My daddy's side were all Catholic. My mother's side were all protesters. Both sides of my family tree were all religious people. I've even got me a Baptist preacher in my tree. I know that old fellow prayed for me a long time ago. He didn't know who I was, but I'm thankful. And all of them, I don't know about him, but my family was robbed. Nobody ever taught them truth because we didn't like to sit in church and be taught. We came to be edified and be built up and hear something, uh, 20 minutes. Have I been 20 minutes yet? I don't think I have, have I? But we didn't come to hear some lengthy dissertation on theology or something. Or prophesy, you know, make us feel good. And that's probably what they went through. The little church in the wildwood, the little country church where you just love the smell of the wood and the flowers. And then springtime, the honeysuckle comes wafting through the windows into the room and, and sing them over again. And you just felt so good about yourself and everything you did. And yet you got nothing. They carried nothing home. And in a time of crisis, they died. They had no power. They didn't know they could. They didn't know there was a devil they had to defeat. They just figured life has its curveballs, and sometimes you get one, and sometimes it knocks you out, and that's just the way life is. They didn't know about the fight in the good fight of faith. They didn't know that you're in a warfare. They didn't know they could win a battle. They didn't know that. They were all robbed of the word. They were cheated. They were just taught to be religious. Nobody ever suited up in the armor of God, drew his sword, lifted up his shield, and fought the good fight of faith. Didn't know they could. Faith was just a word that described your way of believing. It was not a life. The just lives by faith. What did that mean? Nobody knew. And you give place to the devil. Could I tell you this, that the devil is a master deceiver? 
I would say to you, don't believe anything I'm telling you. You check it out in the scripture, see if it's true. If it's not in the Bible, forget it. But the whole world is being tempted by a devil who never discouraged. You beat him, he comes back. You put him down, he rises up. He never quits. He never gives up. The devil never whimpers and whines and cries. He just keeps coming back. Knowing if he can just keep popping you and popping you and popping you, eventually you'll cave in, you'll give up. That's who you're fighting. That's who Jesus faced. Throw yourself down. Look at all I'll give you. Now you'll be the greatest and you'll be, everybody will admire. You'll be in Sports Illustrated and Newsweek the same week. And you, oh boy, look how great you could be. And everybody aspires to be important. Except for Jesus. You wanted to hear him, you had to find him. He didn't even have a card advertising. He didn't even have a cathedral to meet him in. He's like John the Baptist out there in the wilderness somewhere. How do you find John the Baptist? I don't know where he is. Why is everybody following? Because he's got a message that some people want. They're the ones that Jesus came to, baptized by John, out there where John was. What a message the Bible's all about. What an absolutely love epistle this is all about. And how God, who saved us through Jesus Christ, has given us words, we call it the Bible, has given us words that describe what we can do, what is ours. He even told us that he, Jesus, is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. According to the power that works in us, where did that power come from? You could have no power at all except John 19, 11, except God give it to you. So this power of the blood brought deliverance and brought redemption. Time will not permit to go into Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2, but it will permit Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll turn to that. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed, boom, boom, boom. Redeemed, boom, boom, boom. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Ephesians 1, 7. In whom we have redemption. What is redemption? You've been recovered. You've been bought back. What was the price of your purchase? All of you, what was the price of your purchase from death? The blood. The blood. You see, the life of Jesus was the life of God. The blood he spilled was the blood that God provided for us. It didn't just keep a household from dying one night. It kept us alive for eternity. Amen. If we just believe it. This devil, he said we've been redeemed through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. That's what we've been redeemed by and how we did it. Well, what are we going to do about the devil? Oh, praise God. Listen to me. In the middle 
of the book of Revelation, perhaps at least to me, the most mysterious chapter in all the book of Revelation with all its symbolisms and portrayals of this and that, right in the middle, chapter 12. It says this about us and our foe, or those that are here then and their foe. Concerning the devil, the great red dragon, it says, and we, they, overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And I believe it worked like this. As they learned of the power that is in the blood of Christ, how God shows that blood washes away sins. How blood is a barrier between a man and the enemy. And how the blood of Christ is what saved us. And as a man testifies to that power, by the word of his testimony, I testify that in the name of Jesus I plead the blood of Christ over this situation, over my home, over my car on this trip. I pray it all the time when I'm going somewhere, especially if I'm in an airplane. Plead the blood of Jesus on this plane, in this car, bus, wherever I am. That the power that is shown in the Bible to be in the blood of Christ, I partake for myself that power to protect me and to keep me just as it did those people when they came out of Egypt. I'm counting on that. Because it said they overcame him, how? As they dealt with the devil, as they dealt with their enemy, it said not only by their word, but a word that testifies to the power of the blood of Jesus. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Blood is something that was done for you redemptively that secured you to the Lord. But here he talks about in warfare. And I'm going to thank God for that because the blood does that. Amen. He has redeemed us to God. The Bible said who has washed us from our sins in Revelation 1. Has redeemed us to God and washed us from our sins. What does sin do? Sin cuts you off. That rotten attitude that so many people have is sin. Well, I'll tell you what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. Well, I think my view is as good as anybody's. No, it isn't either. Yours is as bad as everybody's. There's only one view that's right. There's only one way that is right. There's only one Savior, one salvation, and one way for that salvation to work. And the only way on this earth that a man can ever be saved is that way. Amen. Now, this politically ignorant world says, well, don't you think you're a little narrow about that? I hope I'm narrow about that because it is narrow. The world lies in darkness. I once was lying in darkness. There's no hope for the world except for Christ. We pray that God will open people's eyes. I pray that he will. He'll open who he wants to. I don't know who they are, but I pray for them. I don't have the Lamb's Book of Life anymore. When I first got saved, I had it. I'd carry it around. I'd put names in and take names, but he took it back. You know better than that, don't you? Not only is there power that is in the blood of Christ, power to redeem us, love that sets us free, but there's healing, healing in the shed blood of Christ. Did you know that? Who bore 
our pains, our griefs, and our sorrows, and the Hebrew words have to do with sickness and pain. He bore that. He went through that. Matthew 8. I know you know where this is. Turn to Matthew 8. It's a good day to read it. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16. Quoting here from Isaiah 53, a messianic chapter. This is what it says. And when evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed most of them that were sick. Aren't you glad it says all? Because there is a theology today that says God could because he has and he might, but you don't know that he will. Because he might want you to be sick and not well. Didn't say that here. He said he healed them all. How would you like to go to your front door and there's people out there that are impaired they're not in their right mind because it's a demonic situation and there's all these sick people coming into your yard they've heard about what you believe they've seen what you've done and it doesn't say how he did it he probably just spoke a word to him but he healed the whole bunch of them the people that weren't in their right mind went home in their right mind and sat up all night and talked and, and the wonder of it all when people just stared all over the city. And yet that wasn't important to the big shots. It was only important to people like us. He healed them all. Then it says in verse 17, he healed them all that so that it might be fulfilled in that which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself, Jesus, took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now that couldn't be any plainer. We saw what he did, and then we're told why he did it. He fulfilled scripture. And one last thing. He gave us, as part of our redemption, what we redeemed from, he gave us the power of his name. Amen. The name of Jesus. A name that is above every name. The name of the Redeemer. The name of Jesus. And I want to read in Philippians 2 as we commence to close. Philippians 2. Verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of us or men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Wherever the devil is, whatever needs to be done, the name that precedes the power is the name of Jesus. A name that we should all learn about. If you're ever going on a missionary field, you should learn about the power that's in the name of Jesus. You got to believe it. You not just read it and memorize it, but realize that I have been given a treasure. Not only have I been forgiven of my sins and brought to Christ, 
I've been delivered from the power of sin. And he's given me his name. The people of the name Christians, we have his name. We use his name. We use his name in everything we do in word or in deed. We do it all in the name of Christ. That's who we are. And we won't forget that because we are very grateful that God brought us out of darkness, brought us into his marvelous light, and he has saved us and given us a sacred moment to reflect on all of this because nothing I've said we earned or gained. It was all given to us. It's called grace. It was given to us. And in closing, all of this, this table, this bread and this cup, is the way we glorify God. We stop. We pause. Before we go home today, we're going to stop. We're going to give everybody who is born again a cup, a piece of bread. And we're going to wait. And then we're all going to partake of it at the same time and reflect while you're holding that cup and that bread. This is your portion. See, Jesus was the bread of God, wasn't he? Now, bread wasn't some big loaf like we think of a loaf of bread. It's probably unleavened bread would have been like matzah, they call it today. Uh, it's just a big cracker, type of a cracker. Unleavened, tasteless. We've tasted it. It's just crumbly cracker. That's what the dogs ate when you broke it. It just, it just crumbles. And he gave one loaf, one bread. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, I think it's verse 16, the, the bread is the body of Christ. The blood or the cup is the blood of Christ. That's what our communion, our koinonia, our fellowship centers around in Christianity. It's him. And this bread, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree and by his stripes were healed. And not only that, but if we took one of those pieces of bread and we broke it in small enough pieces that everybody here could have a piece of it, there'd be only one thing in this room this morning, only one thing that connects us all, and that's bread. Only one thing that we all have in common because we're so different. We are different. But the one thing that is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever, that we are entitled and given a piece of, opened up to by the Lord is a bread, Christ. And as we hold that bread, think of this. You've been invited to be a part of his body. You've been invited to share in the victory that he won. You've been invited to have your portion in the church. And the blood has washed away all your sins and made you able to come before God without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. And in that way, what we're doing glorifies God. Listen to this, and we'll close. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church of Christ, Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We are connected this morning through Christ. And we are redeemed.
We've been saved. We have a Savior. Who's more blessed than us? Nobody. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks this morning as best we know how, as sincerely as we can form words and speak our heart. The silent voices you're hearing now from everybody that, that, that is thinking about this. Lord, you can hear us all at once because you're God. We are thankful. Help us to show our deep appreciation for what he has done by the way we live. Help us, Lord, to overcome all these dumb little things that we stumble over. And may Jesus, the lamb that was slain, receive from us and through us glory. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.